Well, good morning. I'm Jim. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, it's a privilege to be with you. Thank you for coming this morning. Uh, we are in a series through Paul's letter to the church in, Ro- in Rome, known in the New Testament as the as Romans, and uh, we are. You know, if, if you if you this, if this is your first Sunday here, you've only missed 44 messages, so it's it's, it's just a small matter. But um, all of our messages are online. You can uh, go to mylpcoli.com, find uh, the uh, the sermons there, and listen to any of them. You can download them to your personal device and uh, listen to them on your own time. I will say the the benefit of listening online is you don't have to look at me while you're while you're listening to the sermon. So that's a huge benefit, I'm pretty sure. There's a sermon notes form in your program this morning. I hope that you'll take notes. Uh, This is not a light uh, passage of scripture. It's nuanced. I hope that you will take notes. Um, In Romans 14, verse 1, which we were in last week, we were in Romans 14, 1 through 13 last week, Paul established the overall theme when he said, as for the one who is weak in faith, Welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Opinions, in this case, had to do, specifically in the church in Rome, it seems, with questions about what was appropriate for a Christ follower to eat, what was appropriate for a Christ follower to drink. The principle here applies more broadly to other issues, and we're going to talk about some of those this morning. But let me just remind you by way of background why this was an issue. Many of the members of the early church were converts from Judaism. And Judaism is replete with all kinds of laws, Old Testament laws, regarding diet. For those who had converted to Christian faith, their conscience had been shaped by those rules. Regarding whether to eat meat, what kinds of meat to eat, uh, what, whether to drink, particularly wine, those who had come to Christ even from pagan backgrounds had similar things that were unique to the faith from which they converted. And so they came in with questions. They came in with matters of conscience that uh, they had to struggle with and figure out what their Christian faith meant now in relation to those things. When Paul said not to quarrel over opinions... What he's talking about are matters of conscience. Some of your translations, some, of, some translations of the Bible will have the phrase disputable matters. Uh, they are these things where God has not prohibited something specifically. God has not commanded that we do something specifically. Uh, but still we have to make decisions about them for our own lives and our own conduct. And, and Paul says, for those things that, read, that uh, lie in the uh, area of conscience, uh, don't quarrel over those things. Be sensitive to one another 
in those things. So he says, as for the one who's weak in faith, and at the start we have to question, what does Paul mean in verse 1 by that qualifying phrase, in faith, or in the faith? And what we observe very importantly is that the weakness that Paul's trying to get at here is not a weakness of character. He's not necessarily describing someone, for example, who is easily overcome by temptation. He's not necessarily even speaking to someone who is spiritually immature. But on the contrary, as John Stott put it, what the weak lack is not strength of self-control, but liberty of conscience. There's something in their conscience that prevents them from doing certain things, eating certain things. So Paul's concern is for those who are weak, not in character, but in conscience. The weakness of conscience uh, to which Paul was speaking is an individual believer's lack of confidence, an inner lack of confidence, an inner conflict regarding whether their faith permits them to engage in certain activities. The weak Christian, then, is a sensitive Christian whose conscience is torn by indecision regarding matters of conscience. They can't land at a particular place because there are so many questions swirling when they come to particular issues. And the particular matters of conscience that Paul raises have to do, in this case, as I mentioned, with what is appropriate for for a Christ follower, a Christian, to eat or to drink. Whether a Christ follower, additionally, should observe certain days. Whether certain days should be more special than others. Sabbath, feast days, in our case Christmas, Easter, those kinds of issues. So what characterizes, and I'm I'm kind of being a little bit redundant here because I just want to lay this down. What, What characterizes a matter of conscience is that it is not governed by clear, direct commands of God. It has the potential then to cause disunity and divisiveness in the church over differences in the way we approach these things. A distinctive characteristic of the believers weak in faith is that they regard as wrong for themselves some things that God's word has not explicitly declared to be wrong. And they may, in that case, have difficulty granting freedom to others, freedom of conscience, freedom of opinion in those areas. Verses 1 to 13, Paul's speaking primarily to those believers whose consciences are generally strong. The the audience here in, in in verses 1 to 13 seems to be those who are strong. And as verse 1 says, the primary positive principle here for the strong is that they should welcome those who are weak in faith. The welcome isn't characterized by passive acceptance, tolerance, um, but it's to be characterized by active embrace, active inclusion uh, in our lives and in our church. And he gives four reasons in in verses 1 to 13 why we should actively embrace and include the weaker brother or sister. Just So by way of review of what we saw last week, welcome them because God has welcomed them in verses 2 and 3. Um, You know, if God has welcomed them, if God has embraced them, if God has included them in his family, who are we to stand in his place and not welcome them? Secondly, welcome them because Christ died and rose again for them. And he is Lord and we live unto him. Uh, We're not the judge, he is. 
Um, he's, the, he's the Savior, we're not. Welcome them because he is your brother or she is your sister, uh, verse 10a. Uh, they're, they're part of the family of God. Welcome them because we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Each of us, again, coming back to that theme of an audience of one, that we live unto him, and we do that individually. Each of us stands in relationship to God uh, as an individual. We're in a little mini-series here within the larger series. And I've titled this little mini-series, Matters of Conscience. Last week's message was part one. Today is part two. And I want to offer what may be, I think, maybe an important clarification for some of us uh, regarding this. And, And it's this, that we need to be careful about too broadly generalizing on the principle that's expressed in this teaching. Uh... For example, Paul is not placing all moral conduct in the category of conscience or personal opinion, um, nor can we. He, he's not teaching that something is okay as long as, one, it's okay with us, <laughs> or, or two, uh, our conscience doesn't accuse us as we do it. It's possible for us to have an uneducated conscience, an insensitive conscience, and someday I'm going to do a series on what the Bible teaches about conscience because it's so very important. Scripture clearly teaches that certain things are wrong. Certain things are sinful. So certain things are outside the will of God. There are certain things that are commanded that we do that are very clear. Love one another, for example. Um, serve one another. The, the matters Paul is addressing in chapter 14 and 15 are not those uh, he's addressing a believer's conduct in the realm of matters of conscience, those areas in which God has not issued clear commands regarding what we should or should not do and in which we are therefore to exercise our conscience responsibly, wisely, lovingly, obediently, with the intent of honoring God and honoring others. The chief emphasis throughout this section is the Christian responsibility of the strong towards the weak. That's the theme here. That as strong believers, those who have strong consciences, those who have great freedom in a number of areas, uh, the strong are to be responsible for the weak. In in answer to Cain's question, yes, you are your brother's keeper uh, in, in respect especially to this. And in today's text, Paul's argument moves on from how the strong should regard the weak, how they should think about the weak, to how they should uh, treat the weak. That is, from attitudes, not despising, not excluding, uh, not condemning them, to actions, not causing them to stumble, not destroying the work of God in their lives. So let's stand, and is our tradition, let's read our text together. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. 
Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This is God's word. You may be seated. Again, I hope you'll take notes this morning. This is a nuanced messages message, and I've organized it around five do-nots that, that are present in the text that seem to provide the bones for the passage. Now, verse 13 is the verse we're beginning with this morning. It's a, it's a pivot verse in, in the whole chapter. What I mean by that is that it completes the thought that Paul expresses in verses 1 to 12, and really sets the tone for the overall thought in verses 14 to 23. In that verse, Paul warns us, don't pass judgment, don't place stumbling blocks or hindrances. Don't pass judgment, don't place stumbling blocks or hindrances. Uh, Verse 13, therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. In the judgment that Paul's warning against here is a a personal assessment made by either the weak against the strong for their seeming liberality, freedom, or the strong against the weak uh, for their narrowness, their strictness. But it's an assessment that results in division in the church. You may say, how so? Well, if we pass judgment on one another, um, if I have a problem with Brussels sprouts and you go ahead and eat them in my presence, (laughs) uh, the verdict inevitably and necessarily results in a separation. A separation between those whom we regard as genuine, mature Christians and those we don't. Uh, a separation between those whom we regard as genuine, mature Christians and those we don't. Between those whom we respect and honor and those we don't. Between those who become the object of our favor and those who become the object of our disfavor. Between those with whom we choose to pursue closer relationships and those whom we may choose to shun. And Paul says, don't do that. Don't do it anymore. Don't separate from one another over matters of conscience. Don't divide the church. In another place, Paul said, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That ought to be the posture of every believer. He goes on and says, decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of another. Well, what does that mean? I was going to give you a big, long, hairy definition of each of those words. I'm not going to do that. But very simply, putting a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of another believer, when you take those two words together, they they mean very similar things. But when you put them together, it, it means, first of all, to provide the occasion and then the necessary inducement to sin. 
to provide the occasion for sin and to combine that with an inducement to sin. So let me paint you a picture. Imagine that a a Christian who has freedom of conscience to consume alcoholic beverages is out to dinner with a weaker brother whose conscience does not allow that. The stronger brother is aware of his friend's weakness but decides to go ahead and order a cocktail or a beer or a glass of wine with dinner and offers the same to the weaker brother. Is he loving? Is he loving? Is he kind? Is he wise? None of the above, right? Why? Because he has furnished both the occasion and the influence to cause his brother to stumble. Paul says, stop it. Be wise. Be loving. The second don't is this. Don't destroy the one for whom Christ died. Don't destroy the one for whom Christ died. Verses 14 to 15. I know and am persuaded in the Lord that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So here in verse 14, I think Paul really expresses in capsule form the dilemma that faces the brother or sister who is stronger in the faith. The dilemma is the product of two conflicting realities. The first is the persuasion on the part of the strong that nothing is unclean in itself. That what I eat or what I drink does not have in itself uncleanness. And this persuasion is rooted in creation. It's reflected in the teaching of Jesus. It's reinforced by the teachings of the apostles. So in Genesis 1, for example, it's written that when he completed his work of creation, at the close of the sixth day, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. The Apostle Paul reflected this truth as it applies to food when he wrote to his protege Timothy about false teachers who would come in the last days and require abstinence from certain foods. And so he writes to Timothy, for everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. In the seventh chapter of his gospel, Mark recorded that the Lord Jesus himself declared all foods clean. Beginning at verse uh, 14 of Mark 7, And he, that is Jesus, called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, in this case not speaking to the heart as an organ, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean, and he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, 
theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. That is, they make the person impure. Luke later recorded in Acts 10 that the Apostle Peter had a vision in which the Spirit of God told him to kill animals and birds and eat them. And Peter was perplexed by that vision. He protested against it, saying, Hey, I've, I've never eaten anything that was unclean. And in response, three times God instructed him, Peter, don't call unclean any food that God has made clean. So I want you to understand that the persuasion that no food is unclean in itself has deep biblical foundations. But Paul's second assertion conflicts with the first. Specifically, Paul says, that if anyone nevertheless regards something as unclean because his conscience tells him that it is, then for that person it is unclean. So don't miss the paradox here that, that confronts the strong, which is that some foods are simultaneously both clean and unclean. That's the effect. I'm, I'm often reminded that uh, living a Christian life requires a much higher level of moral judgment than most people give us credit for. On the one hand, the strong are persuaded that all foods are clean. And on the other, the weak are convicted by their conscience that some foods are not clean. Same food, different response. Same food, different conviction. Same food, different effect on the conscience. So how then should the strong, those who have freedom, solve the dilemma? How should the strong conduct themselves when two consciences are on a collision course? And Paul's response is clear and unambiguous. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, then you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. I'm going to come back to that word destroy in just a moment. Now, Paul shares the persuasion of the strong, that no foods are unclean in themselves, and that persuasion is his in the Lord because it is consistent with what the Lord Jesus himself taught. Nevertheless, he says, the strong must not ride roughshod over the sensibilities of the weak by insisting that the weak come around to their personal view, conform to their view. Instead, the responsibility of the strong is to defer to the conscience of the weaker brother or sister, even though it may be mistaken, even though it may be uneducated, and not violate it or cause him or her to violate it. And again, Paul provides two reasons here. The first is, if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. John Stott commented on this. He said, love never disregards weak consciences. Love never disregards weak consciences. Love limits its own liberty out of respect for them. 
So here's the way I see it. The, the truest demonstration that you are really free in a particular area of conscience is that you have the capacity to limit your liberty, to forego that freedom for the sake of the conscience of the weak. In other words, if you can't forego it, you're not free. If you can't give it, give it up for someone else, you're kidding yourself about your freedom. Paul put it to the church in Corinth this way, it's true that we can't win God's approval by what we eat. We don't lose anything if we don't eat it, and we don't gain anything if we do. But you must be careful so that your freedom does not cause others with a weaker conscience to stumble. And Paul's second reason here for the strong adopting this attitude is that to wound a weaker brother's conscience is not only to to distress him, to grieve him, but to destroy him. And that is totally incompatible with love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. I don't mean to bombard you with John Stott this morning, but, but he poses three questions, I think, that frame this issue so well. Did Christ love him enough to die for him? And shall we not love him enough to refrain from wounding his conscience? Did Christ sacrifice himself for his well-being, and shall we assert ourselves to his harm? Did Christ die to save him, and shall we not care if we destroy him? And I told you I'd come back to that word destroy. What, what would it mean to destroy the weaker brother or sister? What kind of destruction did Paul have in mind? Well, many people have looked at this even Christian scholars, and concluded that what Paul had in mind is is that that action of violating the conscience of a weaker brother would set into motion, kind of trigger a, a chain of events that would devolve to the weaker brother or sister's eternal condemnation. That is, that they would go to hell as a consequence of the insensitivity of the stronger brother. And I want you to know that I don't for a minute believe (laughs) that that's what Paul is conveying here. For four reasons. First, the Bible teaches that hell is reserved for those who have rejected Jesus Christ, who persist in obedience or disobedience to God. Nothing in Scripture leads me to believe that when someone has sincerely believed in Jesus, has transferred their trust to him, for their eternal salvation, and then they do something that violates their conscience, whether by their personal choice or by someone else's influence or even by accident, that God would respond to them by, by condemning them eternally. Now, nothing in the Bible speaks to that. Secondly, Paul's already said in Romans 8, just a few chapters earlier, remember it, that there is now, what, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus that nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And, And whether we are weak or strong, then we stand before God only in his grace. We stand in grace. And the good news is that his grace is completely sufficient. It can, it can and will hold us forever. Amen. Somebody bless God. Third, though Paul 
uh, implies here in verse 16 that a stronger brother is capable of destroying a weaker brother. Jesus made it clear in Matthew 10, 28, that the prerogative and power to destroy people eternally in hell belongs to God alone. That's, that's only what he does. He is the judge. And fourth, the context of Romans 14, this chapter we're considering, requires a different interpretation of the word destroy. Why? Because reading on, Paul makes it clear in verse 19 that the opposite of destroy is to build up. In verse 20, he clarifies that what is destroyed when we cause a weaker brother or sister to stumble is the work that God has done and is doing in their lives. In other words, when one is one who is strong violates the conscience of one who is weak, causes them to violate their own conscience, a kind of demolition takes place so that their spiritual growth, their spiritual development may be dealt a severe setback. They go back to square one, in other words. And it's a very serious matter for any of us to influence anyone else to act in a manner that violates their conscience. Paul gets real redundant about that in this passage. He says it in as many ways as he can so that we would hear it and understand it. When someone acts in a way that that runs contrary to what they believe to be true and right, their personal moral character is undermined. Christ died for believers with a weak conscience and he died for believers with a strong conscience. The strong then should bear with the moral sensitivities of the weak. Don't try to force them into a different place. In verses 16 to 18, Paul says, don't let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. Don't let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. And notice verse 16 with me. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. When might that happen? Under what conditions might that happen? Think about this with me. It's likely to happen, isn't it, when when we who are strong, if you are strong, flaunt the greater freedom that you have in Christ in a manner that is insensitive to the limitations of the weak. What are they going to do? Sinner. And now what is free for you, what is good for you, what is, what is good, what you are free to do, they speak of as evil. Here, here's a scenario I became aware of a year or so ago. Uh, and this regards alcohol as well. And I'm not here to say that that's the only issue we need to think about. But it is one. A group of Christians were, were in a bar in a local restaurant. We're enjoying some adult beverages. Uh, one of them pulled out his cell phone and recorded the event for history and then posted it on Facebook. And some others in their church whose consciences don't allow them to drink saw the post, were deeply troubled. 
So that what was good for the strong, that is what, what they felt freedom to do, was now being spoken of as evil in that church by those who didn't possess the same level of freedom. Why? Because it was shoved in their face. It was shoved in their face. So when we exercise our freedom in a manner that is insensitive to the weak, we reveal something, something deep. And that is, Paul says, that we've lost touch with the priorities of the kingdom of God. We've lost touch with what really matters in the Christian life and in the Christian church. The kingdom of God isn't all about our right to exercise our freedom without limitations. Instead, he says, the kingdom of God is all about the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, bringing us into harmonious, reconciled relationships with God and with each other, creating genuine peace in the church and in our individual lives, and filling us, both individually and corporately, with joy. The church ought to be a place of peaceful relationships and joy. Now notice where Paul goes in verse 18. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Who's the one who thus serves Christ? The one who gets it and acts on it, right? And here's a reminder that you and I have a vertical accountability to God as well as a horizontal accountability to each other for the ways that we live our lives. We're responsible first to God and then we are responsible to each other. We have an accountability to each other before God. And those who are acceptable to God, meaning we're meeting some kind of standard on the vertical axis according to God's grace, And those who are approved by men, meaning that we have a good reputation, understand that insisting on unlimited freedom misses the point. That to nurture mutually respectful, mutually upbuilding relationships is what matters most. Listen to what Paul wrote on this theme to the believers in Corinth. He said, For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple... Will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, that is your freedom, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat. I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Stumble. Now I want you to know that that, uh, we have kind of an unwritten policy in our staff, something we have agreed to together, and it's something that we ask other leaders in our church uh, to commit to as well. And that is that because there are, number one, there are weaker brothers and sisters among us in regard to alcohol, and because there are people among us who I assume just on the basis of national demographic percentages uh, have alcoholic backgrounds or are active alcoholics themselves. We have chosen that uh, we will not drink alcoholic beverages at any church events. Our staff is is free just like all the rest of us are in that area, in our own time, in our own place. But that's a choice that we have made that is consistent with, I think, what Paul is teaching here. In verses 19 to 21, he goes on, the next don't is don't destroy the work of God for the sake of food. There's that word destroy again. 
So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong to anyone, wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. And notice in verse 19, it's not, it's not peace with God that's in view here, what makes for peace. It's not peace with God that's in view here, I think, but, but peace within the family of believers. Peace between individual members of the church. To offend someone's conscience is to disturb that peace, to violate that peace, to break that peace. It is by my selfish insistence on my rights, my freedoms, to come between that person and God, in a sense. And to interfere with the work that God is doing in their life by his spirit. That's not a place any of us should want to be. The statement that everything is indeed clean could serve as the slogan of the strong, couldn't it? And Paul agrees with it. He affirms it. This is the theological truth that gave them the liberty to eat anything they liked. But there were other factors to consider which would require them to limit the exercise of of their liberty. In particular, there was the, the weaker brother or sister with the oversensitive conscience, the uneducated conscience, the immature conscience, internal doubts, who was not persuaded that all food was clean. So what? It's, it's wrong then for the strong to exercise their freedom in a way that harms the weak. Instead, it's good for the strong. And here Paul drives the argument to its logical and appropriate conclusion to eat no meat, to drink no wine, that is, to become vegetarians and teetotalers and to go to any other extreme, listen, any other extreme, if it was necessary to serve the need of the weak. So here's the bottom line. While freedom is a right, it is not to be, for the Christian, it is not to be the guide for responsible living. Our culture has made it that insisting on our rights at every turn. But that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what the kingdom of God is all about. Love is the guide. Love serves that purpose. Rights are to be laid aside in the interest of love. And that principle, if you wonder, is really at the heart of the gospel. It's firmly established by the Son of God when he left behind the prerogatives and glory of heaven and took our flesh upon himself so that he become our Savior. He limited himself in a, a rather large way, did he not? So here's the way Paul described it to the church in Philippi. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven 
and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, we're never more like Jesus than when we set aside our own freedoms in order to serve one another. Finally, Paul says, don't violate your own conscience. Don't violate your own conscience. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whoever does not, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Now notice verse 22, that first part of that passage, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Um, some people view that as the proof text for their opinion that Christians should never share their faith with others. <laughs> or God forbid, commit the social sin of talking about religion in a public setting. Instead, they should just kind of keep it to themselves. And so I've talked to some people that say, well, you know, my, my faith is a very personal matter between me and God. And, and, and in my great maturity, I want to slap them, right? And I want to say, no, it's not. It's not a private thing. <laughs> That's not what this scripture is saying either. In order to make it say that, you have to, you have to take it completely out of context and, and ignore the direct commands of Jesus Christ to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth, to preach the gospel to every creature, to make disciples of all the nations. You, you can't get that done by keeping your faith to yourself. You can't do that. See, what I think Paul wants us to do is to understand that, that we are individually, individually accountable to God and therefore to understand that we need to come to clear determinations regarding the limitations of our own consciences before him. We may think we're strong, and then run roughshod over our own conscience. And so we need to think about these things. I, I, I will be the first to say that, that I have freedom in a lot of areas. And because of my temperament, and because of foolishness, I could just kind of charge into areas where angels fear to tread and, and violate my conscience. I, I, I might be prone to do that. We live unto him. We live for an audience of one. Paul wrote to the Philippian believers and challenged them to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. And by that, he didn't mean work for your salvation. He didn't say try to earn your salvation. What he said was, work out what God is working in. Work it out. Work out the implications of salvation for your own life. Do that with a very high level of reverence toward God and thoughtfulness. So this teaching really elevates the significance of the conscience, the significant role that our conscience plays in the life of discipleship. It's not, not something we hear a lot of teaching on, is it? Whatever you and I do in our lives that is apart from the clear conviction that God has approved it, Paul says, by definition, is sin. 
It is to act in a way that disregards and therefore violates one's own convictions. So in matters of conscience, we need to give time and thought to carefully consider what are our convictions, what are the limitations that our conscience places on our personal freedoms. The effects that the exercise of our convictions, the effects that the exercise of our freedom may have on others who are less free and less strong. So five don'ts. Don't pass judgment and don't place stumbling blocks or hindrances. Don't destroy the one for whom Christ died. Don't let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. Don't destroy the work of God for the sake of food. And don't violate your own conscience. Next week, part three, Romans 15, 1 to 13. I hope you'll read it ahead of time. How many chapters are there in Romans? 16. So we're in 15 next week. What does that mean? We're getting close. (laughs) Hey, I hope you're in a life group where you can discuss these things further. Um, It's really easy to walk out and just completely forget what we talked about on Sunday morning. I think we need to allow the Spirit of God to work these things into our lives. So I hope you're in a life group where you can discuss all of that. And uh, I hope you'll come back next week. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for um, the ways that you're working in our lives and in this church. And Lord, I pray that you would take these things and really press them down into us. That we would live wisely, that we would live lovingly in relationship to each other, whether weak or strong or any place in between. Lord, help us to be wise in carefully examining the dictates of our conscience and, and the sensibilities of conscience of others around us, that we would be a church that uh, is characterized by peace and love and joy in the Holy Spirit. And we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.